Okay, can we turn to Galatians 3.21 tonight? Galatians 3.21. We have a somewhat of a transcript of Sunday morning's message currently going through the printing press, so there may be a few copies out there right afterwards. I wanted to get that out before taking a small hiatus, and that'll be Sunday morning's message, and we'll get into the most important point of that too as a launching point tonight, Galatians 3.21. Let's take a couple moments of silent prep. Father, we approach the throne of grace with boldness and confidence to receive what we need in this time of need. And what it is, is we need the power of the Holy Spirit to illuminate our, the eyes of our heart, to give us understanding and give us insight that leads to a life, a life lived in fellowship with you, Father, and with your Son and with your Spirit. We thank you for this privilege in Christ's name. Amen. Probably the most important thing that has come from Better Call Paul so far that I want to convey to you is what I mentioned on Sunday morning, the antinomy or the contradiction between two opposing principles or two opposing laws. This comes, of course, from the Greek anti plus nomos. We're not talking about antinomianism. We're just talking about an opposition. I've also called this Greek delta slash English character C, a dialectic of contradictories. And what we do not have, and this is really the second bird that one stone is killing in this study, what we do not have in Romans and Galatians is an antinomy between justification by works versus justification by faith both of these being human acts, even if faith is a divinely enabled act, even if works are divinely enabled works, they are still human works. There is not in Romans and Galatians, as has been the fad to believe since the Reformation and much of Christendom, it is not justification by works versus justification by faith. Rather, what we have is justification by works versus the Christ event which is the cross, the Christ event, let's just call it the cross, resurrection, ascension, and enthronement. Really, the justifying, reconciling, redemptive, or we could, for the purpose of this study only, justification comes by the death of Jesus Christ. The faithfulness of Jesus Christ is a metonymy or another way of expressing his death, which occurred in the faithful execution of the Father's intention to sum up everything in his Son. And that means to save all of humanity, for one thing. So the antinomy or the contradiction is not between justification by works versus justification by faith, which puts you half on the side of the teacher that Paul is opposing in Romans and the teachers that he's opposing in Galatians. It's astonishing and therefore tragic how much Christian exegetes, scholars, pastors, teachers, missionaries, evangelists assume that this is the antinomy that Paul is proposing in these great epistles, when in fact the justifying, redemptive, 
liberating, transformative event is the Christ event. In other words, the real antinomy is between a human work and a divine work. And with that in mind, we have phrases in Paul like reconciled to God by the death of his son in Romans 5.10. It does not say reconciled to God by faith. That is our personal faith. It does not say reconciled to God by the works of the law. It says in Romans 5.10, reconciled to God by the death of his son. The death of his son is the reconciling power. It is a divine act. And we could say that it's a divine passion also. So when does this happen? When were we reconciled to God by the death of his son? When? When God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their sins to them. Why did God not impute the world's sins to them? Why? Because Christ was dying for our sins. He was being handed over to death for our sins and handing himself over to death for us in obedience to the Father's benevolent intent. We must understand the cross does not deal with God's retributive justice, but with God's benevolent intent and salvific initiative. So someday, if I ever write a systematic theology, some of this is coming together right now. But all of this does not end up in just an academic understanding. All of this ends up in you and me getting a life Not any old life, but the life of Christ shared with him in newness of life. That's where this takes us. That's why pastors have to teach it. So where did this occur? When Jesus Christ offered himself without blemish to God the Father through the eternal spirit, as Hebrews 9.14. Where did this occur? On the cross on Mount Golgotha. When? 30 A.D. Much more than we have this phrase, much more saved by his life, reconciled by the death of his son, much more saved by his life, or we could say saved or justified by his resurrection. Why do we have phrases like this throughout Paul's epistles? Well, we're going to look at it again tonight. How about this one? Justified by his blood. By the blood of the Son, which is a metonymy for the Christ event, as we've seen, including the atoning death. Justified by his blood, and so much more saved from wrath through him. That's the wrath that this teacher says is awaiting those who do not observe the works of the law. Because Paul's going to hammer this concept with a whole bunch of teachers in Galatians. In fact, he wrote Galatians before he wrote Romans, of course. And there, Paul quotes Deuteronomy 27, 26, which the teachers use against these Gentiles because it says, cursed is everyone who does not obey the commands of this Torah. And so they threaten them with a curse. And the curse means that at the day of judgment, wrath is going to come upon you. And of course, Paul blows that out of the water, as we'll see. I'm tempted to go that way, but I've built something that I want to present to you tonight. Hopefully, it's a building that will remain on the foundation. 
So justified by his blood, says Romans 5, 9, and so much more saved from wrath or liberated from sin and death. And then Ephesians 2, 5. The reason I've given this many times in the recent past is because when Paul talks about being saved in Ephesians, he doesn't talk about being justified. Justification language is used primarily in Romans and Galatians because it's the language already used by a false gospel in which there is a, an announcement by certain Jewish Christian missionaries, and they are Christians, and they are Jewish in this case, present a gospel, and they even call it good news, a gospel of justification or being set right or rectified by God through observance of the Mosaic law, beginning with male circumcision and then going on to the kosher laws, which Peter buckled under in the church at Antioch by he wasn't following them before and he was eating with the Gentiles. And then all of a sudden, James sent some heavyweights down from home base, as they called it, and that intimidated Peter and it intimidated Barnabas and it caused a flight from insight. It caused a wholesale defection. And Paul likened it to what was happening in the three churches in Galatia, which were northern cities in Galatia, Ancyra, Pessinus, and Tavium. These are the three cities in northern Galatia where Paul planted these churches. The same thing was happening among them. They were defecting because they were led by a false gospel. And what Paul wants to show and what he does show is that God saves all human beings through the death and the resurrection of his son, not through personal faith, your personal faith, as opposed to your personal adherence to the works of the law. They're both human acts. And it won't do to say that the faith of a spiritually dead person, that's absurd. There is no faith in a spiritually dead person. A spiritually dead person is as dead as a physically dead person and therefore as incapable of making themselves alive as a physical person is incapable of making themselves alive. And what God does, according to Romans 4.17, right in the middle of the chapter where Abraham is hyped as the paradigm of justification by faith, and he's not that. But right in the middle of the chapter where Abraham is supposedly hyped as the paradigm for justification by personal individual faith, Paul says God is the one who calls things into existence that didn't exist before and raises the dead, gives the dead life. Romans 4.17. So he's likening the act of deliverance from the powers of sin and death and flesh and the cosmos and principalities and powers. He's likening that to God's act of making the dead alive and God's act of bringing into existence something that didn't exist before, which is the new creation. So... Justified by his blood, we have peace, we, we have much more. We're saved from the wrath that the teacher threatens you guys with. As Romans 2.16 says, that all people's works will be brought into judgment. And then Paul adds in his little phraseology in Romans 2.16, which is through Jesus Christ, according to my gospel. 
through the one who is grace and truth, through the one whose death reconciled you. That's a big difference. But I want to show you, and I've said this before, justification, and I'm using the language of justification for this, just for these arguments. Justification in Paul equals life. Justification is the same as life or the gift of life, which is the sharing of the life of Jesus Christ. It's participation in his life. When Paul wrote to the Ephesians, he was in prison in a place called Apatea, which was a little bit distant from Ephesus. And he wrote to Laodicea, not Ephesus, what we call Ephesians. Again, I'll have to explain it as written to the church, to the people at Laodicea. Paul heard news of a group of pagans who had become Christians. And he wrote to them without having to deal with a false teacher, without having to deal with false teachers, without having to deal with the false doctrine of justification by the works of the law. Therefore, he didn't use justification language. So what he told them is, I want to tell you what happened to you. This is what happened to you. When you were dead, and he says it in the first person plural, I think, because he's relating himself, his own experience to them. When we were dead in transgressions, we were made alive with Christ. When we were dead, again, that's Ephesians 2.5. This is what we would call the pristine, non-dialectical account of salvation. And I was looking at the video where Douglas Campbell said he believed Ephesians to be the most important of Paul's epistles. And it is in one regard, because it came before Galatians. It came before Romans. It was written along with Colossians very early on. And it, be, it was an account of pagan salvation without having to deal with the rhetoric or the antinomy between what the Jewish Christian teachers were teaching and what Paul was teaching. In other words, these people heard the gospel essentially from a proper evangelist and they became a community of believers. And because Paul knew that he was charged with the responsibility of being apostolos, the apostle to the Gentiles, to all the pagans, he saw that these were in his realm of responsibility. And so he wrote to them, and he gave a pristine account of pagan salvation. And without the language of justification, he simply says, you being dead, were made alive with Christ, meaning with Christ's life. Then he has a long hyphen, if he used those, and they didn't, we do. By grace, you are saved. By grace, you were saved. By a sheer act of unconditional, unadulterated grace, you were saved. And in Ephesians 2.8, we can argue very, and I, I will later on, but in Ephesians 2.8 where it says, again, for by grace you were saved through faithfulness. It's talking about Christ's fidelity, Christ's faithful death it is the event, the Christ event. So he could say it this way. By grace, you have been saved through the Christ event. And not of works. You see, it is not a matter of your faith versus your works. It's a matter of, it's not a matter of, he doesn't even use the word justification, just salvation. It's a matter of salvation by the 
work of God in Christ, the saving act of God in Christ called the Christ event, his faithful death, versus works, not of works. Christ's death, not works, lest any person should boast. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. And so my contention is that justification means life, both in Romans and Galatians. Let me show you. There's seven reasons why I believe this. I gotta, if I hit the printer first, if I hit my study first, my Gethsemane first, before I study in my easy chair, I get these things. So I wrote seven reasons this morning, then looked over again at them and saw if they were fitting and saw if they were scriptural. But I began with Galatians 3.21, where we have a verse where the two are equated. In other words, the law is shown to be incapable of doing two things, which really are one thing. The Torah is incapable of giving righteousness or justification, and it's incapable of giving life. Look at Galatians 3. 21. This is translation I've developed from the Greek text. Is the Torah, or the law, therefore against the promises of God? Certainly not, he says, meganoito. For if a law had been given that was able to give life, then righteousness, dikaiosune, which we could call justification or deliverance, would be from the law. And he uses the phrase interestingly here and helpfully, ek namu, ek namu, meaning from the law as a source or from Torah as a source. This goes over and against ek pistios when it's referring to Jesus Christ's fidelity which we have in Romans 1.17, Romans 3.22, Romans 3.26, Romans 9.30, etc. Ek pistios. Again, the antinomy is seen here. It is not the antinomy or the opposition of the opposing contradictory principles are either salvation comes from or life comes from the law as a source and means, or it comes from the faithfulness of Jesus Christ from that as a source and a means. And so the, again, if you understand this antinomy is what's going on in Romans, you have the hugest interpretive advantage that you could possibly have in interpreting Romans and Galatians and Paul's gospel. And what we have as a result of that is taking shape a Pauline apocalyptic vision of an all saving Savior in Jesus Christ, much like we saw in the unlikeliest of places where judgment seems to be everywhere, Revelation, the book, and in John's gospel. So is the Torah, therefore, against the promise of God? That's something we have to deal with in another time. But what I'm hitting tonight is, he says, certainly not. For if a law had been given that was, notice what he says, able to give life, then righteousness would be from the law. Righteousness or justification here, dikaiosune, justification is the same as life. The law can't give life and the law can't justify, meaning the law can't justify, which is giving life. 
The law is incapable of giving life. What this does is it pits the Torah against Jesus Christ, whom Paul calls a life-giving spirit. In 1 Corinthians 15.45, the law can't give life. And we're going to see this in seven ways. There are, there are many things that come to light by this verse. But the main thing I want you, I want us to consider, is the juxtaposition here of righteousness or deliverance and the giving of life. The Torah and its impotence is in its inability to give life, which is the same as saying its inability to give righteousness or, as we've been seeing, dikasune means divine deliverance. And so... The Torah's impotence is in its ability to give life, which Paul makes equivalent to its impotence to justify right here in Galatians 3.21. So between Galatians 2.21 and 3.21, 2.21 from Sunday's message, 3.21 from tonight's, we've got two lenses to give us 20-20 vision. That means that justification and life are one thing. I suggested this because sometimes you know things intuitively, and I don't trust my intuition. Because I don't know sometimes my intuition is what I really want to be true. And sometimes my intuition is what God is showing. And I had the intuition several months ago, if not a year or more ago, that in Romans 5.18, when it says that by one man's disobedience or one man's unrighteous act, the many were made unrighteous, so by the act of one man, many were given, and the translation usually says, the justification of life, or life-giving justification. But it should be translated as, because Dikaiosune and Zoes are right back to back, the justification that is life. The justification that is life. And I think that's a proper translation. So, I would say... In Romans 5.18, it is the justification that is life in Romans 5.18. The first reason why this is the proper translation is found right here in Galatians 3.21, in which dikaiosune, or justification, is equivalent to the giving of life. Because he's showing that the law can't do two things which are really one thing. The law can't give righteousness, and the law can't give life. The law can't justify anyone, nor can the law give life to anyone. But Jesus Christ, who died for the sins of the world and was buried, rose again, and in his resurrection, he became a life-giving spirit. Where does life come from? In the same chapter in 1 Corinthians 15, 45, where the second Adam, the man from heaven, is called a life-giving spirit through his resurrection, the same chapter Paul already announced boldly, confidently, and without fear of reprisal by false theologians, that in Christ all will be made alive. In Christ, which we could even interpret if you want, by Christ by and in Christ, all will be made alive. I can say by Christ, all will be made alive because Christ is the life-giving spirit. My words are spirit and life, he says. 
That's John 6.63. But we don't want to mix John and Paul up, do we? I do, because they're both saying the same thing about the gospel, and uh, we'll be going there someday, too. A second strong reason why I equate justification with life or the gift of life is by pitting the Torah, again, which is incapable of giving life, pitting the Torah against Jesus Christ, the last Adam, ho eschatos adam, ho eschatos adam, as he's called in 1 Corinthians 15.45, who became in his resurrection a life-giving spirit. So the Torah, by these false teachers, was supposedly giving life. Jesus addressed this trend, which was still alive in these Christian teachers, in John 5.39. You search the scriptures because in them you think you have eternal life or the life of the coming age. But you don't come to me that you might have that life. Why? Because he's the life-giving spiritual person, the life-giving spirit. He, Jesus Christ, is. John five thirty nine and 40. The third reason I would equate justification with life is that in 1 Corinthians 15, 22, the scripture simply and economically declares, without the use of justification language, which he had to use in Romans and Galatians, that in Christ all will be made alive. I'm kind of repeating myself, but that's the third formal reason. The fourth reason that I would equate justification with life is what I've already mentioned, Ephesians 2.5, and also in Colossians 2.13, which says essentially the same thing with added nuances about circumcision, in which Paul tells the Christian pagans in Colossae and in Ephesus and in Laodicea that when they were dead in sins, they were made alive with Christ. Listen carefully to this. This is where it's kind of simple, but it's kind of searing in the way people present the gospel, including myself. He does not say when they were unrighteous, they were made righteous. Not here, not in Colossians or Ephesians, where he's not dealing against the teachers who bring a doctrine of justification by the works of the Torah. He does not say when you were unrighteous, you were made righteous although that's true. But he says that when you were dead, you were made alive with Messiah. So he doesn't have to deal with this justification language there because he's not dealing with the teachers who use that language to promote justification by the law as a source. Ek, from the source of law, from the source of law, or by the means of law. He does not have to combat that So he has a pristine account. It's like the first morning of the new creation. He simply says, you were made alive. You didn't exist before as the new creation. Now you do. Being in Christ, you're the new creation. Delightfully, they took it at face value. So he wasn't dealing with that over and against his ekpistios by the death of Jesus, which he died in the faithful execution of the Father's intention. Once again, to explain what it means by the obedience of the one man unto death in Philippians 2.8, what that means is 
Jesus' death occurred during the faithful execution of the Father's intention to recapitulate everything universally, to recap or summarize everything universally in Christ, Ephesians 1, 9, and 10. And he was obedient to the divine initiative to save all of creation, including the screaming creation, and we scream out inside together with creation, and the Holy Spirit also groans with us for that deliverance, that final deliverance from or ransom from slavery to corruption, that is resurrection, bodily type. So he died in the faithful execution of the Father's intention to recapitulate all things universally in himself and the divine initiative to save all of creation, especially all of humankind. He simply says, even when we were dead in trespasses, he uses the word paraptoma here for transgressions, which he used in the singular for Adam's transgression. Even when we were dead in trespasses, God made us alive with Christ. He does not say in Ephesians he justified us because, again, he's not having to deal with that platform. He's not dealing with that platform. If it weren't for the teachers bringing a justification by works of the law message, he probably never would have said the word justified in all of his epistles. And so you see it only in sections where he's trying to take down the citadel of the teacher's false gospel. So when he's able to just tell people what happened to them, he says, you were made alive in Christ being dead. So he simply says, even when we. Now he says, I think he says we in the first person plural because he too, on the road to Damascus, was dead in the course of transgressions, was he not? Because as Acts 9 portrays him, he was breathing out threats of murder against the church when God made him alive with Christ. So he made us alive. You guys have experienced what I've experienced. He says to the church at Laodicea, which we call Ephesians, but it's not Ephesians, it's the Laodiceans according to Colossians 4.16. That's the Bible. I don't know if you want to pay attention to that or not. So he does not say he justified us. He simply says he made us alive with Christ. It simply seems that Paul is identifying with the saints and faithful siblings at Laodicea. For he too was made alive with Christ when or while he was dead in trespasses or transgressions. Now here's where we would challenge gospel preachers. We could ask, When were you made alive with Christ? That's a good question. Many Christians today, in fact, I'd probably like to give this as a test, set up a booth and say, when, are you a Christian? Yes. When did you, when were you made alive with Christ? You know how many people are going to say, and I've heard them say it, when I repented of my sins and was baptized. And they'll go to Acts 2.38 to tell you all about it meaning baptized in water, of course. Others will simply be much more economical and gracious and simply say, when I repented of my sins. That's when I was made alive together with Christ. Still others would say, when I accepted Christ as my Savior, 
When I performed that human act, that's when I was made alive. So God had to go run over and say, hey, just accepted Christ. Let's run over and give him life. Let's quick. Let's move over there and give him life now. He just accepted Christ. Let's respond to that human act. So God's running all over the place, see. He didn't do everything in Christ's death. He's doing everything one by one. It's individualistic here. Well, better call Paul. Some would even say when I believed in Christ. I think we better call Paul. Paul, when were you made alive together with Christ? He would say, when I was dead in transgressions. Oh, wait a minute. Yeah. I called Paul. That's what he said. Right answer, Paul. You're right. You're correct. You're justified. (laughs) So why are so many of us at odds with Paul today? Theologians, scholars, pastors, teachers, evangelists, people who blitz people on the streets. Why are we so at odds with Paul? Maybe we aren't taking the side of the teacher that he's opposing in Romans altogether but maybe we're siding with him just a little bit, that teacher. Unknowingly, of course. Or we may be siding, much more likely, with a traditional interpretation of Paul in Romans that keeps us in the autonomy of a human act. We can point in our autonomy from God to a human act which caused him to respond to us with giving us life, even the human act of faith, even if it's divinely empowered. Because the false teachers are saying that your observance of the law will, God will help you a little with that. He'll help you. Oh, that's so gracious. Thank you. And so we may be partly siding with the false teacher. Some people even quote parts of Romans 1 through 3 Assuming they're quoting Paul and siding very heartily with it. And they're siding entirely with the teacher who says those who persist in the doing of good will find glory and honor. Those who persist in wrongdoing will have wrath and tribulation and anguish. You see that wrath is waiting for you. Paul says, really, then why are we justified by the blood of Christ much more saved from the wrath to come by the justifying act of Christ's death. Why, why, does, why does Paul say that? Because that's the unchained gospel, everybody. That's the truth. That's the gospel. So it's much more likely that we side with the traditional interpretation of Paul in Romans that keeps us in the autonomy of a human act as our justification rather than looking away from ourselves entirely to the faithfulness and the faithful death and resurrection of the Son of God. The fifth reason, well, I get seven? I think so. The fifth reason that I would equate justification with the gift of Christ's life is because God is the one, and this is repetitious, who calls things into existence that didn't exist before. Hey, no light there? Light, be, light is. Darkness in that heart of Saul of Tarsus, he who, Paul said this, he who said 
light be shown into my heart with the gospel of the glory of Christ, the knowledge of God in the face of Jesus Christ. There was no light in me. God said, let there be light in him, and there was light in him. And so I was made an existence in Christ that did not exist before. That's an act of God. You should buy insurance against that. It's an act of God, they say. A tree fell on my car. Is that an act of God? I don't know. Might it be the act of the wind? But God's in control of the wind, so you can get insurance to pay for you because it's an act of God, they call it. Well, this is really an act of God. I'm waxing facetious, which has never happened before. So the fifth reason that I would equate justification with the gift of Christ's life is because God is the one who calls things into existence that didn't have existence and raises from the dead or gives life to the dead. Romans 4.17. Intriguingly, and I want to make this clear because I, I, I'm not approaching Romans 4 until I get back from a short hiatus because there's a lot to it and I don't want to play with that until I, I get it down. But it's intriguing to me that this declaration, Romans 4.17, occurs right in the chapter, which seems to be hyping Abraham as the paradigm for justification by faith. And the Jewish teachers, of course, hyped Abraham as a man that was justified by circumcision and then observance of the law. But Paul wasn't responding by saying Abraham was justified, rather, by faith in Jesus Christ. He is responding in an entirely different way in a thicker and more depth, in-depth understanding that Abraham actually participated in the faithfulness of Jesus Christ in a precocious way, as did the other saints who were approved in Hebrews eleven two through 40. But that's, again, you can see where that's going. That's a whole other world of theology and a world of hurt for me to get it squared away. The act of justification does not occur when a human being believes, listen carefully, even if that human being is Abraham and even if God, quote, recognized Abraham's faithful trust in him to be righteousness. What God is actually saying there, Abraham was already called by God in Genesis 12, 3. So we're not dealing with salvation. What Paul, what in, in essence, what God is saying is God recognized as the spiritual life a participation in the faithfulness of Messiah with Abraham, not circumcision followed by observation of the law or observance of the law. That's essentially what he's saying. But again, that's going to have to hold that off. Don't judge me on that until I'm done with Romans 4, and that's going to be a while. But for now, suffice it to say that the act of justification does not occur when a human being believes, even if that human being is Abraham, and even if God recognized Abraham's trust in him, really this was the final act of God's dealing with Abraham, where he recognized his faithfulness as righteousness which because it was a participation with Christ's fidelity and therefore what describes the post-regeneration life is that kind of faithful trust. That's coming up. But the act of justification is analogous with the act of God in creation. There's nothing. He says be, and it is. 
The act of justification, again, I'm using that language even though it's a poor translation of the word dikaiosune or dikaio. The act of justification is analogous with the act of God in creation where he makes a new creation where it formerly did not exist. And when he resurrects out of death into life in his act of redemption. The act of redemption is God's act. The act of reconciliation is God's act. The the act of creation is God's act. The act of redemption is God's act. The act of justification is God's act through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. It is God's faithfulness demonstrated in the fidelity of Jesus Christ to the extent of death by crucifixion. And my faithful one will live resurrected because of his faithfulness. You can say my righteous one if you want. In other words, the non-existent can do nothing to exist. Try to imagine a non-existent willing to exist. I will to exist, therefore I exist. Kind of a perverse Descartes, I think, therefore I am. I will to exist. No, that's impossible. That's absurd. And the dead, physically dead, can do nothing to become alive. The physically dead body doesn't say, I don't want to be here. I don't want to be dead. I want to be alive. And so God says, okay, doesn't happen. And it simply will not do to say that God makes the faith of a spiritually dead person effective, which implies that a spiritually dead person can have faith. I don't think a person can be dead in trespasses and sins and have faith that God has to make effective for salvation. Now, I'm, I'm not criticizing that from one standpoint. I'm criticizing it because it won't do. It doesn't explain anything, but it explains as far as you can go. If you believe that justification is by faith, you have to say that. Well, God takes the faith of a spiritually dead person and makes it effective for salvation. So it's still the spiritually dead person's faith, but God makes it effective. But I'm telling you that justification does not even come from a person's personal faith made effective by God. It's the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. You see, the step that we have to make from here is that God saved the human race corporately and collectively, though that salvation may catch up with you at different points in time and for some even after death. Let's just call that a theory now instead of a dogmatic pronouncement, but let's just call that a theory. Now, I know that's controversial. But, I mean, you can't help but be a little controversial because we're going a little bit against the grain here. A little bit. The sixth reason I would equate justification with with life is by the contrast in Romans 8, 2, and 3. Here's we're going deep into the unchained gospel. Let's go there. Romans 8, 2, and 3. The The sixth reason why I would equate that term justification with life itself or the gift of life is by the contrast in Romans 8, 2, and 3 between the law and what God did. The law, Torah, is the opposite of what God did. And there's another antinomy here, which is related to the antinomy we're already dealing with. So what we have in Romans 8, 2, and 3 is an antinomy between the law or Torah of sin and death versus the law or Torah of the spirit of life. 
which shows the inefficacy of the law to give life and the total efficacy of the act of God in Christ and in the Spirit to give life. Let me just do the chapter, starting at 181. This comes after Romans 7. That's going to be another whale of a chapter down the road. Romans 7. Is it Paul before his salvation? Is it Paul after his salvation? Is it not even Paul? Is it Paul expressing what happens to people who think that by their free will they can obey the law? And does it rather show that salvation does not involve your free will, but the freeing of your will? Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ. And therefore, he says in Romans 8, 1, consequently, there is no condemnation awaiting those in Christ Jesus. That's directly in opposition to what these teachers are saying. There's condemnation awaiting those who do not observe the law, who do not become circumcised and observe the law. Because as the teachers said in Galatians, Deuteronomy 27, 26 says, cursed are those who don't obey the commands of this Torah. You've got a curse waiting for you. You have condemnation waiting for you. Paul says, I beg to differ. The act of one man brought everyone into condemnation, while the act of one man in righteousness brought everybody into righteousness, which is life, or the gift of life. Everybody. Consequently, there is no condemnation awaiting those who are in Christ Jesus. Just one more knock on the head, just to make sure that teacher's doctrine is dead. Why, he says in verse 2, this is one way of putting it, why is there no condemnation awaiting those who are in Christ Jesus? Because the law of the spirit of life set you free. Here's the liberational aspect of the gospel. This is why justification almost better should be translated liberation, deliverance, liberation from the superhuman enslaving principle of sin and death. So here it is again, Romans 2, 8, 2. Why? Because the law of the spirit of life, the principle, the operational power of the spirit of life sets you free. And the word is eleutherosin or eleutherosin, which is liberation. The law of the spirit of life sets you free from the law, which is the enslaving principle of sin and death. The law of the spirit of life may also be called the law or the perfect law of liberty. The perfect law of liberty is the law of the spirit of life. Wherever the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And so, in closing, Romans 8, 3, for what the Torah was powerless to do, the Torah was impotent to do what? To give life or to justify. Galatians 3.21, Paul's on the same page with himself against teachers. And Paul today would stand against a lot of Christian teachers, and he would not be popular. He wouldn't be. Not in today's atmosphere of Christendom. Romans 8.3, for what the Torah was powerless to do, since it was totally weakened, astheneo here means weakened to the point of total impotence. It became, it's totally impotent. 
The law is entirely impotent to make life where death is and to create where there's no existence. The law of Moses, the Torah. What the Torah was powerless to do since it was totally weakened by the flesh. The flesh here is portrayed as a suprahuman power that weakens the law. God did. What the law, the Torah was powerless to do, God did. So we're dealing here with the human act of obedience to Torah versus a divine act. That little word, God did. What the law could not do in that it was weakened totally by the flesh, God did. How? By sending his son. Divine mission number uno. Numero uno. In flesh like Ours sent his son in flesh like ours under the dominion of sin in flesh like ours under the dominion of sin and as a sin offering compare with Romans 325 condemned sin in the flesh. There's no condemnation for you because God condemned your sin and all sin in the flesh of Jesus Christ on the cross. So why is there no condemnation awaiting those who are in Christ? Because God condemned sin in the flesh in his son's sin offering. God made him to be sin. That means the sin offering in 2 Corinthians 5.21 so that we might become the righteousness of God in him or the proof of divine deliverance in union with him. Thank I'm thanking God for giving me at least the beginnings of an articulation of these things. The great antinomy in Romans and Galatians is between human acts in accordance with Torah's commands and the divine act of God in Christ. Well, my prayer was last week. If we are going to Florida, which is only realized when the wheels are up and then the wheels are down. I want to preach or teach in such a way in the last three or four messages as if they were the last messages I would ever preach in my life. But then I realized that's almost what I always pray to make something very clear. And that is the great antinomy in Romans and Galatians is between human acts is between human acts in accordance with Torah's commands and the divine act of God in Christ. You were justified, reconciled, saved, given life by the act of God in Christ, followed up and connected with the act of God in the Holy Spirit. For the same one who sent the Son sent the Spirit into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. That's when we get a life. It's an antinomy, not justification by our act of human faith, even if it's divinely given, it is not the antinomy of the act of human faith versus our acts of observance of Moses' law. It is an antinomy between God's saving, liberating, creative, resurrective, and life-giving act in Christ and in the Spirit versus human acts done in observance of Moses' law. How much does that antinomy strike you when it's put that way? So here we're killing two birds with one stone, and I'm grateful that's my goal. That was my goal the last time I went to Florida 
my goal was to kill two birds with one stone, and that's the first goal. And we're doing it, I think, in the first 48 messages. Since my last time going to Florida, up to the next time going to Florida, it will be 48 hours of teaching on this subject in which I think we are succeeding in killing two birds with one stone. First bird, there's no possibility that the law can justify because there's no possibility for the law to give life. Second bird, there's no antinomy here between the works of the law for justification and justification by personal faith of an individual, but only the antinomy between the act of God in Christ accomplished in God's faithfulness demonstrated in Christ and the human act of obedience to the dictates of Torah. So the seventh reason I equate justification with life is because this is explicitly tied, and this is the most important thing, really, this life, giving of life, is explicitly tied to God who is rich in mercy. Ephesians 2.4 comes before Ephesians 2.5. It is not by righteous works that we accomplish, but according to his mercy, he saved us. In Titus 3.5, this mercy was, listen to what I say about mercy before we close. This mercy was and is extended to us and to all. According to Romans 11.32, when we are imprisoned in disobedience, not when we decide to obey. Mercy is extended to those imprisoned in disobedience, not to people who decide to obey. Then you get mercy. According to Romans 11.32, therefore, I equate justification with life because of God's great unconditional unrestricted love because God is rich in mercy and because of the great love wherewith he loved us says Ephesians 2 4 he made us alive with Christ while we were dead in sins it's an act of benevolence it's an extraordinary act of kindness in Christ Jesus and so mercy does not take account of creaturely merit it only takes account of the desperate plight of the creature and does something to alleviate it. Secondly, mercy liberates from that plight and transforms the condition of enslavement to one of liberation. God is a God of love who has made peace with all creation through the blood of the cross of the son of his love, according to Colossians 1.12, reaching all the way to 20. He comes to us as he came to Israel in her blood. I came to you in your blood. He says in Ezekiel, and I said to you, live. That's all. I said to you, live. Those he finds in their blood are given life through the death of the son and called to live by the blood of his son. And so Israel lives. And so we live. And so all Israel will be given life from the dead, according to Romans eleven fifteen. And so all Israel will be saved, according to Romans eleven twenty six. God is not a God of retributive justice, but of unquenchable love. Stay with me in this last sentence. I'm done. I'm done. God is not a God of retributive justice, but of unquenchable love. And the most vehement flame is not the fire of hell, but the fire of God's love in Christ Jesus, from which we can never be severed.
Song of Solomon 8, 6 and 7. Romans 8, 35 to 39. Saving mercy, therefore, triumphs over retributive judgment because God is love. Thank you, Father, for this opportunity tonight. And you have answered the prayer of my heart that these things could be articulated. Now my prayer is that these things, having been articulated, would continue to be articulated, bringing more and more clarity. I pray that you will, even as you nailed our sins to the cross, I pray that you'll nail these truths in our hearts so that we do not forget them, so that we are given a life and able to live in a newness of life that we never even imagined was ours. I ask this in Christ's name.